0: like us to take our Bibles this morning and open them to Romans chapter 4. Before we come to our time around the Lord's table, we are returning to this great epistle concerning the doctrine of salvation. That's really what the Apostle Paul is addressing throughout this entire epistle. Our stand before a holy God, how we can be with God, and what that looks like when it's lived out in our lives. This is the doctrine of salvation. I've entitled this message, as you've probably seen in your bulletin, Going Against an E.F. Hutton Mentality. When Debbie sent that out, someone texted me. Nice title. You are probably wondering why I've entitled it that way. Some here, I am sure, remember years ago there was an ad campaign on television for the financial company EF Hutton, and they had a slogan that went against all the other competitors that are out there for financial business that made the statement that they don't make money like everybody else makes money, implying they don't make money by inheritance somebody giving money to them or they don't make money uh, by winning it in some kind of game they gave it they get it they said the old-fashioned way they earn it that's how they put it that's my rendition you surely remember if you were old enough to remember you've heard that statement. Maybe you've even heard someone repeat it. And that statement is really meant to emphasize the maximum effort that they as a company would put in for earning a great uh, reward or return on the investment that someone was giving them. So for their clients, they would put maximum effort into that. And I was thinking about that recently. That thinking is not new. In fact, it is epidemic to the very nature of mankind. It is epidemic to who we are as humans, and it characterizes much, sadly, of religious thinking today. There are many who believe and teach that a person can acquire salvation the E.F. Hutton way. They can earn it. And this morning, Paul is reminding us that we must understand salvation differently. We must understand that it is not that way, and we must even go against that kind of thinking, or we or potentially others may not be saved. While the world may in fact use an E.F. Hutton principle effectively in finance and even in some other things, it will not work when it comes to actual salvation. Henceforth the title of this message, We Must Go Against an E.F. Hutton Mentality. The doctrine of salvation and all that it encompasses, which is those grand terms that we hear about and sometimes misunderstand, like justification and imputation and atonement and faith, the doctrine of salvation, both spiritually and theologically, is the thesis that the Apostle Paul is writing about to the believers in Rome. And it is essentially answered with by answering this very question. How can unholy man be made right with a holy God? That's really essentially the ultimate question that underlines all that Paul writes about. How can man, who is so unholy, who is so unperfect, stand rightly and justified before a holy God? That is the question for all of mankind. And thankfully, it has been answered by God. And that reality and its implications must be entrusted by all men or there is no salvation. So in our particular study of the book of Romans, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul has been very clear. He has not been confusing to us. It is very clear concerning this very principle at the very least, the universality of guilt. Everybody is guilty. In fact, chapter 3 and verses 10 and 12, in this final paragraph, really, which begins from verse 9, the final paragraph of chapter 3, Paul says these very words. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. For all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Quoting from the Old Testament, of course. Paul lays the axe at the root of the tree. Everybody is guilty. Mankind is in a humanly inescapable position of guilt before God. And God's justice is guaranteed to be meted out. It is coming. Verse 19 and following clearly says that, that that God has shut up every mouth under the law. Every mouth is closed. The whole world is accountable to God. Justice is in God's hands. We are reminded again in our last time together as we were looking at verses 21 to 31, the only way to be justified before God is to have God's righteousness. His righteousness is the only righteousness that is acceptable. And that righteousness is only appropriated By faith. Which is why it seems rather ridiculous that man would try to think that faith is his. If the only righteousness that is acceptable is by faith, then the only faith that is acceptable to get that righteousness has to come from somewhere other than man. Verse 28 clearly says that we maintain that man is justified by faith apart From the works of the law. Now there is no greater place in which Satan himself has stirred up confusion within the evangelical church than this. And in the minds of its spiritual victims in which he has laid root of the deception, there's no greater place that it's been laid than in this doctrine of salvation. How? Man, unholy, can stand before God, holy. The doctrine of salvation by faith alone is the front lines of the enemy's attack upon the church. If Satan can succeed in confusing this doctrine in the minds of those in the church, then he has succeeded in keeping men deceptively in their sins and ultimately under the divine condemnation and judgment of God. Because here's the reality. There is a judgment day coming and on judgment day in one of the every person in one of the false religions of the world will in fact stand before God and they will find that their supposed salvation is based upon some type of works salvation and will hear the words from God, I never knew you. Because they have based their life upon their own efforts, their own righteousness, whatever that is, define it however you want, put whatever picture you want on it, but it's a work of theirs, and they will hear those very words from Jesus Christ, I never knew you. Every person in a heretical church, every person where they sit under the teaching that is not the biblical teaching, confused concerning the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, will find on judgment day his or her supposed salvation being based upon human effort and will hear those same words. In fact, any teaching that holds to any form of salvation by any other means other than faith alone is under the deception and the lie of the father of lies, Satan himself. It will not save them. And it is this fact that undergirds the Apostle Paul's entire argument in chapter 4. Justification is not by works, it is by faith alone. And it has always been that way even before God gave His divine law through Moses. And so this morning, I want to spend our time engaging this truth so that where we find ourselves in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, we we engage this truth of justification not by works but by faith alone, even as Paul will show us, Before Moses ever gave the law, and I want us to unfold that truth for us so that we can look at it and understand better the doctrine of salvation. Notice what the Apostle Paul says in chapter 4. So what then shall we say that Abraham, according to the flesh, has found? Now, you notice I skipped over forefather there. I'll I'll let you know about that in a moment. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Because what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. And stop right there. The Apostle Paul, in a brilliant fashion, like a prosecutor in a courtroom, lays out the case of his life. And he makes his case concerning both God and man. And we have already learned all men are guilty. The prosecutor has laid the facts out in chapters 1 through chapter 3. The all men are guilty before God. It doesn't matter who it is. Religious man, moral man, pagan man, all men are guilty before God. Here, Paul is specifically dealing with the Jews because they were the religious people of the day. They wanted to, to believe that their efforts in religious activity was enough to save them, and so Paul is dealing with that. But 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 I I don't think we can just pigeonhole it there because because the scriptures speak to us two thousand years later. It speaks to the Gentile as well. It speaks to us in a moral way who who think by morality or think by some other religious activity we could make our way to God. Paul says no no the only way to be justified before God is by faith alone to believe in God, or to believe God. To believe what God has said. And if anyone thinks that that kind of thinking is flawed in any way, Paul says, okay, fine, then let's look at the Old Testament. Let's go farther back in history. Let's just not talk about your little experience. Let's talk about the experience of history. Let's particularly look at the Old Testament, and two of the most respected people of the entire Jewish history. Let's look at them. Paul says, let's look at Abraham and David. Let's look at how they were declared justified before God. As we begin, we need to understand that this line of of argumentation would have been a death blow to any Jew. I mean, Paul is going right at the juggler. Paul is saying, okay, you still think after all that was said before and all the argumentation of chapter 3 that you by some means can justify yourself before God? All right, let me take you back to the people you love so dearly. How were your most blessed people justified before God? This is a death blow. To the thinking of the Jews. Why? Because every Jew every Jew to them these two historical people held uh, were held in most highest esteem to every real Jew Abraham and David man. that's like the best people you could ever find Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. No one would ever speak bad about Abraham He was the greatest, the foremost of the patriarchs. And David? Oh, David is the greatest king. I mean, even throughout the Old Testament as you read, everything's pointed to David. David as the king, the promise to David, the promise to Abraham and the promise to David. And and through them would come all the blessings to the nation. I mean, David was considered high above all people. If those two are considered righteous, if God sees them as righteous, and every true Jew would have considered them as such, then how was it that they were given that distinction before God? Did they arrive there by their efforts or by the gift of faith alone? According to the Jewish rabbis of Paul's day, Abraham was justified. Not by faith in God, but by his faithfulness to do what God asked him to do. That's what the rabbis taught. In fact, Habakkuk 2.4, which says this, the just shall live by his faith, was often interpreted by the rabbis and taught in synagogue, saying this, the just shall live by his faithfulness. The just will be justified. The just will carry out his life by his faithfulness to do whatever God says. In other words, rather than salvation coming through the gift of faith, exercise toward God alone, it was taught that salvation came through one's efforts at faithful living. Certainly in line with God's law, but at your efforts to keep it. So holy living brought about justification in the rabbi's minds. Some today say holy striving is accepted. And in many places it's accepted as the means of justification. They may not say it that way. They may not explain it that way. But that's the reality of what they're teaching. Just do what God says. Follow the words. Do this. Believe in God. Uh, even if you want to believe in Jesus, just do what he says and God will be happy with you. Sometimes, even with true believers, we get caught in that trap. We get caught in the trap that our that our outward activity somehow causes God to like us more. That somehow, if I read the Bible... Uh, 14 hours a day instead of just 12 hours a day, God somehow is going to like me more and be more pleased with me. Somehow if I, if I never miss any kind of devotional or if I, or if I never miss this or if I do every spiritual discipline that is defined as a spiritual discipline, if I make sure I do those, man, I, God is going to be so pleased with me. He's going to want, I'm going to sit in the front row when it comes to heaven we begin to equate our justification by works. So Paul uses Abraham and David as the supreme human examples for his Jewish readers. Even though they were righteous before God, it wasn't by works. That's Paul's point. It's by the gift of faith exercised in God alone. So it was not by an EF Hutton mentality. They did not earn it. So look at me at what look look with me at what Paul says here. This is very interesting. Because Paul says, first of all, in very clear terms, justification is not by works. We've heard it before. For some reason the spirit continually is driving this nail down deep in our hearts and our minds because we need to hear it over and over and over again. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? That's a confusing way the New American Standard writers have translated that phrase. Paul asks a a, a simple question. Since we agree that Abraham is the best example of a Jewish man being justified before God, he's the patriarch of the Hebrew nation, the Jews themselves, then let's look at his life on what that justification is based. And so Paul's argument goes right to the heart of the issue. Paul is a Jew. Philippians says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he was a Jew like every Jew and yet of, of a certain tribe of Jews that were closest to, to uh, being in that Jew of Jews category. You're a Jew, but I'm this kind of Jew kind of idea. And every Jew would have identified with Abraham. And so, so Paul knows the argument. Abraham being the father of the nation, if he gained righteousness a certain way, then then it must be that all others could also gain righteousness by following the way Abraham did it. So Paul asks this question, what was Abraham found to be true? What was true of his life? And you remember that phraseology, according to the flesh, our forefather according to the flesh. That's a, that's a, a strange way to say it because the way it's written there, it seems as if, Paul is saying, uh, let's consider Abraham, who's our father by way of our humanity, according to the flesh. But that's not what what it's saying in the original. In the original languages, it's it's this idea. Let's look at Abraham. Did Abraham gain righteousness by his works of the flesh? That's the idea. He's the the one who, who, did he do it that way? Abraham, our forefather of the nation of Israel, did he get it by the, the, the deeds of the flesh. Has he found this justification according to the deeds of the flesh? That's the idea. In other words, has he earned his salvation by his efforts? That's what he means by the word flesh there. In fact, it's clarified in verse 2. We'll get to that in a moment. But suffice it to say, at least in verse 1, that that this was the reasoning on which the Jews based their life. If Abraham uh, was declared righteous by God by doing what he did, then that's what we're going to do. That's the reason Paul makes a statement in verse 2. Because if Abraham was justified by works, do you see that's he ties the whole idea of flesh, not the humanity of people, but the idea of of this outworking of life, this outworking of doing righteous deeds. If Abraham is justified by works, then he has something to boast about it 's almost like paul can't can't end the sentence right there, that he has to get this in. He has to say this too because it's almost its so disgusting to even think of it like that that Paul says he has something to boast about, but not before God. I mean, don't even let your mind go there. That's what Paul's saying. Don't let your mind go to that place where, where potentially you might think that that's what I'm trying to say. No, that's not what I'm trying to say at all. And the Jews believed that Abraham was justified by work no doubt there was plenty of good deeds that they could certainly point to when they came to the argument but we need to be careful about good deeds because good deeds for those who are truly saved are the product of justification are Acts of obedience to the things of God are the product of being justified, not the means to gain justification. When Abraham was called by God in Genesis chapter 12 to leave his own country and to leave his relatives and to leave his father's household and to go to a land that God would show him, what did Abraham do? says in Genesis chapter 12, verse 4, so Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. All Abraham acted upon was the words of God based upon the very character of who God is. The text tells us in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham left his home, Abraham left his homeland, he left his friends, he left his relatives, and I imagine much of what he had acquired at that place abandoned the temporal security of all of that place, as one commentator said it, for a future uncertainty, at least in the eyes of unwatching or of watching humanity. It seemed as if Abraham was a nutcase. You would think. Here's a guy who has it all. Here's a guy living in comfortability. And Abraham one morning wakes up and says, Hey, listen, I'm leaving the place. I'm going to this place. Where are you going, Abraham? I don't know. But I'm going there. Well, You're a whack job, Abraham. To watching humanity, it probably was uncertain, but... It's not uncertain in the mind of God. God called Abraham. And through the gift of faith, by entrusting his life to what God said, Abraham went and obeyed God. So obedience was the product of faith. Of course, we understand faith even the gift of faith to us when we exercise we we don't exercise faith oftentimes in a perfect way we don't have complete understanding just like Abraham Abraham didn't have complete understanding of all that God had said but Abraham believed God the same way our faith works and increases from faith to faith as we exercise our faith our faith is strengthened by God and in time What did God do with Abraham? God tested Abraham. After the birth of the promised child, God tests Abraham with his son Isaac, the the child of promise. Isaac is that child that, that God had given to Abraham in light of the promise that He had given him in chapter 12 and the very gospel promise that Abraham believed was that, I will give you, I will make you a great nation. From your descendants, all the world will be blessed. In there is the seedbed of the promise of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God said, I will crush the serpent's head. The one through whom God would bring the blessings of promise to Abraham and his descendants. Now God is commanding Abraham to sacrifice him on the altar. Again, Abraham's trust in what God says is seen as he obeys because he believed God. Genesis 22 tells us he rose early, went out in obedience to God, and God, by His grace, provided a substitute for Isaac. But the Jews wrongly assumed The Jews wrongly assumed about Abraham. They would have pointed to all of those kinds of things, all of those obedient acts of Abraham as he did what God said, saying that because of Abraham's faithfulness to obey, because Abraham was faithful to do what God asked him to do, therefore Abraham was justified by that obedience. And if that were true, that God justifies people by obedience, their own acts of obedience, then Abraham would certainly qualify. He would have something to boast about, as Paul says here in verse 2. But since that is not true at all, any boasting about efforts only carries weight with men. It only impresses men. But it has no weight with God. So Paul says, not before God. He, he, he can claim those things, but not before God. Abraham found nothing in himself to boast about before God. You say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that? Well, th- that's the kind of argument that Paul anticipates. Paul is a Jew. Paul knows the very arguments he would make. Paul knows what the Jewish mind, how the Jewish mind thinks, how the the effort to justify oneself thinks. And Paul's anticipating that question. It's much like the age-old answer often given when someone disagrees with truth. Sometimes somebody will disagree with the truth and they say, well, that's your opinion. Paul's answer is an example to us of how to answer an example to us of how Paul thought of things, to the objections concerning what was right and what's wrong and how do we know that. The answer is not to appeal to other people. The answer isn't to appeal to to someone in humanity. The answer is to appeal to the highest authority. And what's the highest authority? Just what Paul uses here. Notice verse 3, because what does the Scripture say? In other words, how do I know Abraham was justified by faith alone? Not because I said it, not because somebody else said it, not because there's a whole host of rabbis in the religious organization that say it It has nothing to do with any of that. That may help verify those things, but the reality is, what does the Scripture say? What's the Bible say? In other words, let us no longer seek human wisdom or opinion on a subject. Let's not seek that. What we need is the final authority. Paul is an example. Paul appeals to the word of God. What does the scriptures say? Don't take my word for it, in other words. Take God's word for it. What scriptures? Particularly Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. In that verse, before any kind of obedient works were done, We hear the central theme of the gospel. Abraham believed God. Those are really meaningful words, moving words if we're hearing them. Genesis chapter 15 is where we read those words for the first time. You don't read them any time before that in the scriptures. In fact, go back to Genesis chapter fifteen this morning. We have to go there. We can't. We can't not go there. Genesis chapter fifteen. It's an amazing reality. God had given the promise to Abraham already in Genesis chapter twelve. In Genesis chapter 15, beginning verse 1, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord, Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? I'm an heir of my house, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, I, I don't have any children. Lord, you, you've made this grand promise to me. I believe you, but I I don't have anybody in my house. My only only heir is is a a servant in my house. You've given me no offspring. No one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, verse 4, This man will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, look, 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 Abraham, let me explain it to you, right? Look at the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. That's a great way for God to say it. That's like saying, go to the seashore and count all the sand on the shore. Really? There's not a chance. I can't do that. Exactly. That's the point. That's the point. You couldn't count the blessing. You couldn't count the largeness of what I'm about to do through you for the humanity. You couldn't even understand it. Go count them if you can. Do you see the sky? So shall your descendants be. Then, verse 6, he believed in the Lord, and he, who's the he? God, reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, before, in all the passages about Abraham, it's recorded that righteousness is reckoned to Abraham. Reckoned. In spite of all that Abraham did, it wasn't until this point that God says, Abraham believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. So his response to the seemingly impossibility of what God was saying concerning his descendants and the birth of an heir, which ultimately points to Jesus Christ, is the emphatic outworking of the gift of faith in Abraham's life. And the Word of God is the foundation for that. Now go back to Romans chapter 4. Because the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 4, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned, credited. It was credited. That's what the word reckoned means. The word in the original language is used 11 times here in Romans chapter 4. 11 times. Do you think Paul's trying to get something across? It's an accounting term. It it, it always means something put into the account. This is the whole idea where we hear that that terminology in salvation of imputation. This is an accounting term. It It is credited to one's account. So God placed his righteousness into Abraham's spiritual account Because of faith, not works. Abraham believed God and God, he, as Genesis says in Genesis 15, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, God considers the faith exercised as his righteousness. That's why it can't be man's. God only accepts his righteousness. I don't think it could be any clearer. And so Paul destroys the wrongful use of Abraham in the mind of the Jew. You cannot use Abraham that way. He is not a work salvation Abraham or, or an example. How do we know that? Because the scriptures declare it. Not because you looked at his life and said, well, he did all these things and therefore because he did his faithful deeds, therefore he was justified. No, 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 no. You're looking at it wrongly. The only reason he did those things is because of the faith that God gave him that he exercised which was reckoned as righteousness. Paul destroys all the ideas by just opening up the Scriptures. That the Jews held so sacred. Abraham was credited. Righteousness. It was given to him. By the agency of faith. Not by works. And what was true. Of Abraham's. Faith is true. In regard to every true believer's faith. How do we know? Notice verse 4 and 5. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor. It's not reckoned to him as a favor. It's what is due him. That makes sense. We have jobs. I mean, we even understand that. They understood that in the agrarian society, in the society in which they lived, that they did a job if they were a servant or whatever. They, they got paid for that somehow. They were given something in light of what they did. Jesus uses that in the Gospels. Not everybody was paid the same. They all went to the field. They got the same amount. They got to pay. They got a wage for doing what they did. We understand that. No one who works his wage, it's not reckoned to you as a favor. It's not not a grace to you. It's not something given to you for doing nothing. You did something, so you earned it. It's due you. But to the one, verse 5, who does not work, but believes, and that is a present tense Participle. That is a continuing reality. That, is, that isn't a belief in an intellectual descent. One time say, I believe in a fact. No, that is a continuation of belief. That is a continuation of entrustment. The one who continually believes what? In him who justifies the ungodly. Who is that? Same person Abraham believed. God. God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased in the New Testament. Believe him and trust yourself to him. Paul says any other gospel is just another false gospel. Anything that says other than believe in Jesus Christ by faith alone is another gospel. Not another one that will save you. It's a false gospel that in the end you will hear those words, I don't know you. God who justifies the ungodly faith. Notice in verse 5. He who does no work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. You notice that phrase? His faith is reckoned as righteousness. The only righteousness God accepts is His righteousness. It's the only righteousness that can pass the muster of His stipulations because He's perfect and need perfect righteousness, and yet we exercise faith. We believe. It can't be a faith I produce. It can't be a faith I conjure up. Listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ and it's true salvation, God gave that to you. And that faith that you exercise by His grace through His power is reckoned as righteousness it's faith in him who justifies the ungodly so faith is what God's righteousness looks like in us you say how do I know I have the righteousness of Christ in me how do I know I have the righteousness of God how do I know I'm assured in my salvation how do I know God's righteousness has been accounted to me do you have faith Do you believe? Does your life reflect the reality of that faith in your life where you're continually entrusting yourself to the one who judges righteously and you continually are walking in obedience to what he's called you to do because that's your desire of your heart? Listen, if that's your life, you didn't conjure that up. Because you didn't want to have anything to do with God. I guarantee that. It's God who produced that. It's God who brought that. It's God who opened your eyes. It's God who quickened you to life. It's God who gave you the faith. It's it's the Spirit in that moment when Christ was blazed upon you and God granted you the faith that you embraced Jesus Christ. That wasn't you. Certainly you were exercising it, but not because it was produced in you. His faith is reckoned as righteousness. Let's not make the error in our understanding here. Although faith is required in salvation, it is not faith that saves. It's not faith that saves. What saves is the power of God and His redemptive grace coming through the agency of faith In what he said concerning his son, his son who paid the satisfactory sacrifice on the cross, that has the power to save. The gospel is the power unto salvation for all who believe. Why? Because in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So faith, regardless of what some may try to say, is not a type of work that man produces. Because if it was, if it was ours, God would never accept it. The only righteousness He accepts is His. It's not a work of us. It is, as Ephesians 2 says, a gift from God. Saving faith is a gift from God. But it never leaves you like you are. True saving faith never leaves you unchanged. And not unchanged, not changed just for a week or three weeks or three months or four months or five years. No, you're changed completely. Oh, certainly, you're, you're going to have a, a life of obedience that looks like this. And sometimes you're walking by faith and you're trusting God and you're, 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 you're doing what God's asked. You submit yourself to the will of the Father and, and through the, the Word of God and you're submitting yourself and you're exercising that trust in God and what He says, regardless of the circumstances. And other times you, you choose flesh. You have to go back and confess. Say, Lord, I'm so... So sorry, it's not because not because I didn't have the power to do what's right. God, you have equipped me with that, but I didn't do it. Why? Because I let sin master me. I didn't have to, but I did. I should have just trusted you. That's uh, that's again another reason why Paul says in verse five that it is Him who justifies. The ungodly. That's us. That's everybody. The universality of guilt. The universality of ungodliness. That's all of us without Christ. If faith is yours, then you're not ungodly. In light of those words, you're clueless as to the reality of your deadness. Not by might. Or by power are we saved? Not by ours. Not by our might. Not by our power. We are saved by His power. We are saved by grace through faith. We are declared righteous. Justified in His sight. And then begins the process whereby God helps orchestrate things in our life that we would walk in that righteousness. In other words, when we are justified, then He begins that that work, however long we're here, of sanctifying us. Making us in practice what we are before Him positionally, praise God. Holy and righteous before Him positionally, By His grace and by His mercy, He works in us as we walk by faith and grow in entrustment, as we walk and learn and live and read and saturate the truth and and the Spirit encourages us and motivates us and gives us understanding. We walk by faith. We are changed from moment to moment to moment into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Faith upon faith upon faith. And just as Abraham, so too it was for David. So too it was for David. We'll get into this more next time, but it's the same exact truth that David taught. Abraham taught that. Or Abraham's life proved that. David's life proves the same. And that's what he says in verses 6 through 8. Notice what he says. Just as David also speaks of this blessing. Upon man whom God reckons righteousness apart from work. This blessing are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. Once again, Paul is appealing to Scripture. Paul is appealing to what does the Bible say? He quotes the cries of David from Psalm 32. I read it this morning purposefully. David, the patriarch, David, or David the king, David the one who's on, on a pedestal, David who the nation knew was a horrific sinner. How is he justified? Don't try to tell me he's justified by his righteous deeds. Don't try to tell me that. In fact, today most people will say, well, David was a sinner too. That's how we use it. The Jews would have never done that. But Paul's doing that. Paul's saying, listen, don't 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 go there. This is what David said justifies him. This is how David would stand justified before God. David would never claim before God, listen, I've done all this good stuff, I deserve it. No, 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 you don't have to go far. Just go to Psalm thirty two, go to Psalm fifty one, against you, and you only have I sinned, David said. Every Jew knew that. And so Paul, once again, quotes the Scriptures. He says, look, here's what the Scriptures say. David's repentance over his sin with Bathsheba, the blessedness that David knew through God's undeserved grace. It was not because David was a righteous man. He was faithful in all that he didn't know. So Abraham is justified by faith. David is justified by faith. And every true believer since then has been justified by faith. And faith alone only one way that we can know Jesus Christ. There's only one way that we can have the righteousness of God reckoned to our account, and that is by faith. In fact, it is the faith that is reckoned as righteousness. We're going to take some time around the communion table here in just a moment, but I just want to end with the words of the hymn writer James Proctor. Here's what he said. Just one little sentence, or one little verse. He said, nothing either great or small, nothing sinner, no. Jesus did it all. He did it all long, long ago. It is finished. Yes, indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? Unquote. That's all we need. Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words this morning. I trust we haven't been confused. These are difficult things at times in our minds because the just the profoundness of it that how we are saved has nothing to do with us everything to do with you and you made a way you provided every little detail everything showing us that we could not keep it could not keep your word we would not and so you sent one who did and one who could one who would one who was faithful in every jot, every tittle, every moment, one who was righteous in his own self and yet paid the penalty that we deserved so that through the exercise of faith we could stand before you as righteous. Thank you for that gift. Thank you for Jesus Christ in whom we believe. Thank you for giving us the word concerning him. Thank you for giving us the spirit now on this side of justification that we might walk in obedience to you. Thank you for your word that tells us how to do that to your honor and to your glory. Tells us how to reflect Jesus Christ as we walk according to what he was and did. In every way, Lord, not because of us, but because of you. So we thank you for these things, Lord, and trust these into the hearts of your people. Cause them to to be mindful, to think deeply on these things, to be challenged by them, to look deeper into them, to be able to share them with others so that they might know true salvation, true assurance. Thank you for imputing our guilt to Christ, Christ's righteousness to us. In Him, in Him alone, do we have salvation, and in His name we pray. Amen.